This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And we're continuing our series interviewing, well, I've started up calling them the minor parties, and I thought I'd call them the citizens' parties, but now I'm calling the real parties. Actually, the parties standing for election this uh, election, standing for office, standing for your vote this election, who actually have real people uh, in them and funding them and asking for your vote, not uh, what would we call them, sock puppets, um, not the robots uh, that we have from the old parties that are already in parliament. And I've got to say, I haven't come across one of the real parties that doesn't deserve to be in parliament. Oh, my goodness, they've been, with that uh, exception, very, very good, very principled, very valued, and outstanding compared to what we have in parliament, which is just, the same old, same old. And today, it's a great pleasure of mine to introduce you to Alfred Nurrell. He's going to correct me if I get it wrong. Uh, who is standing as the leader of a party called New Zealand, which is a great name for a political party, New Zealand, but New Zealand with a New Zeal. And Alfred has been an MP, been a minister, so he knows of what he speaks. Good morning, Alfred. Good morning, Rodney. And look, it's a, it's an honour to be here. I actually think, uh, if I can remember right, you actually had uh, you were calling us the elephants in the room. Do you remember when you talked about this? You actually said that the true elephant in the room actually is about the minor parties. Yes. And I remember you you talking about that because there's a window of opportunity in our political history uh, like never before, where actually these minor parties are actually where the topic of conversation needs to be. So. Hey, so honoured uh, to be able to be here with you uh, and great to have time uh, to speak with you this today. No, well, it's my pleasure. I agree with you. And I don't buy for a second. No one should buy into this wasted vote argument. That is a tired old argument pushed endlessly by what I call the legacy parties and the le legacy media to reinforce the status quo. If there's a party out there that you'd like to vote for them, give them your party vote. And don't worry about them making it over the threshold or not. I'll tell you why. Because you've registered your vote with the party that best articulates your concerns, and the other parties and the, even the legacy media will have to take that on board. More particularly... It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you say, oh, well, I'm not going to vote for the party I really like because they won't get over the threshold. It's that sort of thinking that has condemned our democracy to what I'd call a professional political class and prevented citizens from entering our parliament and giving it a much-needed breath of fresh air and a shake-up. So don't for a minute think, oh, well, I'd really like to vote for New Zealand, but I really want to get rid of Labour. And so I'll vote for, I don't know, Winston Act or National. Well, um, I tell you what, that probably is a wasted vote because nothing much is going to change. <laughs> and it's this point. When you vote for a, a, a party that doesn't make over the threshold, sure, your vote doesn't count. But your vote doesn't count if you vote for National Act or Labour in a funny way because no election campaign is decided on one vote ever. It's the mass. 
And so what you should be doing when you vote, in my humble opinion, is vote for the party that most aligns with your values and that you'd most prefer to see in our parliament. Now, Alfred, tell us about yourself, because it's a big thing to head up a political party. It's a big thing to strive to get back into parliament when you've already been a parliamentarian. So tell me, you are a Cook Islander. Tell me about that Cook Island bit. So I, uh, both my parents came from the Cook Islands, and they came uh, in the early 60s. It was part of, as you know, uh, Rodney, at the end of the Second World War, there was a labour shortage in New Zealand. There are three countries in particular that we have a political relationship called the realm countries. In other words, they are self-governing but in free association. Cook Islands, Niue and Tokelau. So my parents came from the Tokelau. They've got New Zealand passports and they came into New Zealand to help fill that labour shortage. My mum was a cleaner. My dad was a labourer. They um, found each other at the Orange Hall. People who know back in the day, it was the nightclub of the day. And they came there um, fell in love, got married, and uh, yeah, so I'm the second of their children. I was born in 1966 at the old St. Helens Hospital uh, in Pitt Street, across from the YMCA. Grew up in Ponsonby, 142 John Street, so in the inner suburbs. Uh, and then from there, my mother uh, and dad went out to West Auckland. It was the time in which you could capitalise your benefit. My parents were a working-class family, and they bought uh, a house uh, in Chilcot Road in Henderson, and then we then went on to schooling uh, during that period of time. My grandmother, by the way, was um, she was half Jewish. Her name was called Rita Goldstein. So I had this uh, very interesting mix, um, an amazing uh, upbringing because it was a three-bedroom house. We had outside toilet, no running hot water. But, you know, Rodney, we never felt poor. We always felt that every day was the window of opportunity to succeed and to do well. Mm. And so that's the upbringing that I had. Uh, How many yeah, so siblings? Me. So there were six of us uh, mm. from uh, my mum and dad uh, that was there. And then we all went on uh, to West Auckland. Uh, and then, yeah, trained as an electrician. Now, just uh, stop there yeah. for a minute because there's things here that interest me. You're going to um, think I'm even stupider than you already think. Is the Tukalau's part of the Cook Islands? No. Um, so there are three what they call nations of the realm. Uh, ah. that New Zealand has a particular uh, relationship with. But and your so, parents are from the Cook, not Tokelau. Yeah, they're from the Cook Islands. Okay. Uh, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I got confused. And tell me, your grandmother yes. was a Cook Islander. She was Cook Island Jewish. So no, her I father, can't get my head around that. I know. Well, her, her father, Marcus Goldstein, he was part of the pogroms. You know, back in Poland and around Europe at that time, there were the Russians coming down obviously wanting to to kill the Jews. So a number of them actually escaped, and he was one of those that went to England and then was on a ship coming down to Australia and New Zealand. He stopped in the Cook Islands. He met my great-grandmother, uh, Tapiri Ariki. They got married. They had two children, two daughters. Uh, one died and one lived, and one of them was my grandmother, Rita Goldstein. And he lived in the Cook Islands? He lived for a number of years, and then he left and he passed away. So, yeah, so my grandmother then unfortunately wasn't able to continue on uh, that that uh, relationship of understanding the culture and the heritage of, you know, her father's uh, Jewish side. Mm. How amazing. Isn't, isn't uh, the world a wonderful place when you think of 
that chance relationship and then you think of your mum and dad um, meeting in a in a nightclub and six children are born and you grow up and it's just, it's wonderful, is it not? But it's sort of like quite surprising at the same time. This the chances and the windows and the doors that people go through. And they're momentous because for you, you were born. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I love the way when I think about the history and the things that she would tell me, you know, I, um, I've still got letters that she wrote on the back of an envelope. You know, she was born of the generation, of the turn of the century where, you know, you kept everything. And when we were growing up in Ponsonby, we're on the brass bed, but the bed kept on getting bigger because there were things that were being saved, right? Every button, every yeah. piece of envelope, every pen, nothing was wasted. Yeah. And uh, it sort of got into the, the realm of hoarding. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's just the way life was. It was the culture that they grew up in. And isn't it wonderful to appreciate it? Because I don't want to growl at young people too much, but there's nothing more irksome than a, than a young person who lives an extravagant lifestyle telling you how you must conserve resources. And you think of our parents' and grandparents' generation who lived on the smell of a farthing and recycled and, you know, would at night would have one 40-watt bulb going in an entire house, have, as you say, an outside toilet, bury, bury the sewage into the garden. And they lived extremely low emissions lifestyle and sustainably. <laughs> and you get lectured to. Um, by these young things that are jetting around the world. It just irritates the stink out of me, to be honest. Well, I remember that, you know, we had fruit trees at the back. We had vegetables in the garden. Yes. You know, I remember that one of my jobs was not only me and my brothers to to collect all the fruit, but we'd then bring it in and they'd be boiling it on the gas stove. Yes. And then you'd put the glass jars in the oven because it's part of preserving, right. you know. And then you'd have to get the cellophane wrapper and you had to yes. put the cellophane and the rubber band and then the yes. little then the label on the side. And then you had the shelf full of all of these. And it looked beautiful, didn't it? It looked beautiful. <laughs> and that would be your 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 luxury dessert in the wintertime. Yeah. Um yeah. now you just go to the supermarket and throw a couple of cans in the trolley. Tell me, you went off to be an electrician. Yep. Why? Uh, sorry, two options. Um, my family come from a trades, and like um, for me, I mean, my dad was a labourer. He became a welder, and I suppose that I always felt that I was good with my hands. And so, um, I actually went off to be a Maori pre-apprentice. And even though I'm Cook Island, they had opportunities for both Maori and Pacific. Mm. So, and believe it or not, Pariku Hotaman was working for Maori Affairs, so he was he was in charge of us. So I did that, and it was a great time. I went to the hostels in, in, uh, in Domit and Epsom. And then I then from there, I went on to to then actually go with uh, Jim Cater Electrical in Avondale. So, yeah, I just felt that I just I thrived. I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the thinking and problem solving that came uh, from that. And to be honest, Rodney, it's, it's held me in good stead because part of electrical is actually reading schematic diagrams. In other words, when you've got the complexity of a situation – You've got a fault that needs to be found. You then track and trace that. And so systems thinking became part of my DNA. Mm. Mm. Well, um, 
you clearly got good heritage because you look about 35 and I've worked out you must be about 57. So <laughs> yeah. um you've you've got remarkable youthful looks and outlook. <laughs> now, how did you go from being an electrician to standing for parliament for the National Party? Well, I actually went on to become a pastor, did a theological degree, and my wife and I, we ministered in Glen Innes and Pam Muir. Uh, she was a counsellor, so um, we've been married for 38 years now, and I've had 38 years of unsolicited counselling. So emotionally, Rodney, uh, I had already been prepared for parliament, right? Yes. So, <laughs> which I needed that. Um, at the end of 20 years... W- were, was, you, were you a full-time pastor? Yeah, so I was pastoring in a church, and at the same time, too, we ran a trust. And in that trust, we had a kindergarten, food bank, op shop. Um, we delivered counselling services, youth services as well. So our heart was actually about serving our community. Uh, we got involved in education and housing and health. And so we just had a real heart to actually help. So help, the community me, help me here. Help me here. You grew up a Christian? Yes. And which particular denomination? Well, I was in. We grew up in the uh, Presbyterian Church, the originally yes. PIC Presbyterian Church. Yes. And then it was actually my life changed as that because the foundations of prayer and reading the Word were important. Um, but then it, there came a moment where I realised that actually the foundation is something to build on, and I had then uh, my own personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and and that happened when I was young. That happened when I was about eighteen, and I then started seeing how that could change and transform my life. So now the values that I had were not just about something I read and prayed about, but I could live them in my everyday life. Wow. And so you started your own ministry? Well, we we passed it through the church. Through the Presbyterian Church? No, we went after Bible college. We went to a community church out in yes. Glen Innes called Tamaki Community Church. Yes. Uh, yeah, and that's where we were for, for almost 20 years. Yeah. And when you said you serviced your community, was that a geographical community in Glen Innes, or did you regard it as the Cook Island community? How did you perceive the community you were serving? Uh, it was all all people in the community. So it was a the geographical community of people inside Glen Innes. Uh, and then we also too found myself also to the wider region of Auckland. Mm. So uh, during that period of time, I was then also too with the Auckland District Health Board and the CFAC committee. In fact, Wayne Brown was the chair at that time. Yeah. Uh, I then also too was, I suppose people started to see my ability to be able to analyse, to, to bring leadership and understanding and to bring other alternatives, and not just about how to fix problems with people, but actually how to help people find solutions even to their own issues and problems that they were facing. And and that's probably my point of difference. Mm. You have children? Four adult children and two grandchildren, three boys and one girl. Mm. Now, forgive me, but I imagine being a, a, a minister and working in the church doesn't pay great. Like, you'd be watching all your colleagues, electricians, people that you're in the community who are working, and they have a lot of money. And I imagine you you and your wife 
got by on a lot less with your family because of your chosen profession, serving the community. Did you find that hard? Uh, yeah, we did find that hard. We not only had our four children, but for a period there, we also looked after three nieces. Uh, had my father-in-law with us who was unwell. But, you know, part of the culture that we come from is that, you know, family and community are important. And so uh, it was a season in our lives. It was difficult. It was challenging. But sometimes the best of who we are comes out in the hardest of times. And yes. so we built character around resilience, how to preserve things, how to be disciplined and how to be focused while still loving and caring uh, for our family and to the people in, in our community and whom we, you know, we love. And did you regard your work in the community as being directed by God and serving God? Oh, very much so. You know, it was very much a – I suppose that when people have said to me, what is it about what you do? And, and I said, I suppose that we learn two things, especially in the New Testament, love God and love your neighbour. Mm. You know, it's it's quite simple. And so the more we love God, the more we learn to love our neighbours, to love the people around us. Uh, the more that we can see that the gifts that we've been given are things that we can share and help other people. And so you then act with a spirit of generosity. Uh, and so all of those have very much been part of who we are uh, and now it's been passed on to our children. I've been very fortunate, Alfred, because I have been – I've had the prayers of a lot of listeners and um, and support, and I'm a very recent Christian. And I never thought I'd ever say those words. And it's wonderful to me. It's the most wonderful thing. I can't even articulate that. But I think you know what I mean. I think listeners who are Christian know what I mean. And um, in fact, I'm tearing up just describing it. But as a recent Christian and a new Christian, I can't help but look out upon the world and find it so godless, so valueless, so so without purpose. And now I see all the problems in the world that I saw as disjointed and disconnected as one problem. Does that make sense? It does. And one of the things I, I felt that even in my transition from uh, being a pastor to being a politician uh, happened because I really believed that darkness is purely the absence of light. Yes. And so when we walk into those places, if we know the light of the love that God has given to us, yes, um, then we can bring that. And I remember that as a young child when I was going to Sunday school, is that, you know, we'd sing this, their song, you know, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty. And then the challenge for me was the question, of, then how big is your God? Is he the God of the Bible you've read? Is he the God of the, of the prayers that you've prayed? Is he the God of the reality that can shift? If he can shift your heart, can he, you know, transform your home? And could he revive the nation? And I suppose that's, that's the conviction. We call it a conviction. As you know, it's, it's what we believe in is that we walk into. And I can say, Rodney, you know, I've seen significant shifts happen uh, around me um, because of the change in my own heart uh, mm. that has allowed for others to change. Yeah, Me too, in a short time. Now, 
did you tell me about your getting approached or approaching uh, to become a candidate? How did that work out? How did that happen? So I was at initial party fundraiser. Never been to any political event before. Um, Sam Lutheringa had asked me to say the prayer at the end of the event, and as I was about to go up, um, my wife said, "Look, just one job, sweetheart. Just say the prayer." And nothing else. And I said, I am always your obedient husband. I went up and I said, ladies and gentlemen, my job is just to say the prayer. But I thought I'd like to say one thing. And I said, all night I've heard about left and right, red and blue, labor and national, this policy, that policy. But the truth is, it's uninspiring. And it's uninspiring because I haven't heard a vision that captures the dreams and aspirations for me, my family, and even my community. It's uninspiring because I haven't then heard a set of values that would drive that vision. That means that you mean what you say, you say what you mean. And so I said that, um, so could we say a prayer like this? And I'd ask that you keep your eyes open. And I said, Father God, I pray that the political leaders of our nation, that you would open the eyes of their heart, that they will speak with a vision that captures and inspires the dreams and aspirations of our community and our people. And could... They mean what they say, say what they mean, and could their word be their bond? If they got it wrong, could they have the courage to come out and tell us that they tried but they failed? We may not like it, but we would respect them. In Jesus' name, amen. As soon as I did that, I actually got a standing ovation. I actually thought I was going to get kicked out of the of the function. And John Key came across and said, um, who are you? And I said, I'm just a guy saying a prayer. And he said, no, you're a guy that should be in parliament. Wow. And that really began my journey of actually coming in to Parliament, and not because I wanted to. In fact, I had no ambition, no desire, never been involved in any politics or studied politics or been a part of any political party. But when someone said to me, you're the perfect candidate because it's the House of Representatives, and if you could represent the views, the values, and even the vision of a community, your community, then that makes you the perfect candidate. And so that was my beginning of my nine years in Parliament. Wonderful. What a wonderful story. And to be approached by John Key. So you stood in a seat and got in on the list, I'm guessing? Yes, and so I became a list only MP in 2011. Uh, I was honoured to give the first address and reply, and you'll know this, at the beginning of every term of Parliament, mm -hmm. um, John Key, the Prime Minister, approached me and said to me, I'd like you to do that on behalf of us as a, you know, as a party, as a Parliament. And so I was honoured to be able to do that and to give that address and reply. And uh, it began, I suppose, my journey where I then took the attitude of an apprentice. And so I decided that it's like, you know, the first job you get as an apprentice is sweep the floor and make the cup of teas. That's what people say. What are you going to do? I'm just going to sweep the floor and the cup of teas. In other words, no agenda, just simply to serve, to look, to learn, and to listen. And as I took that, what I found was then people realised they didn't have an agenda, uh, Rodney, doors opened. And so I had opportunities to learn from, you know, uh, Bill English as a Minister of Finance about financial fiscal responsibility. I got an opportunity to be able to, to look and learn about education and pedagogy and so forth, health, infrastructure, housing. And so I built up a knowledge, but more importantly, I suppose I built up trust within the party and then when Bill English became the Prime Minister, he invited me to become a Cabinet Minister under his leadership. How wonderful. Yeah. How wonderful. Well, listening to you talk, 
I can well imagine John Key and Bill English picking you out for high office because um, you carry a conviction and an intelligence and an understanding, which is, shall we say, without being disparaging, somewhat rare in Parliament. Because the, most politicians, I think you'll appreciate, are the opposite of you. You know, they just want to be there. Don't you find? Yeah, I um, Yeah, look, as you'll know, you've been there. <laughs> There's a lot of ambition, you know, a bit of ego, uh, or maybe yeah. a lot of ego. Uh, and, you know, people have, I suppose, agendas. Uh, my, my only, you know, desire was to actually serve. Were your and, mum and dad alive yeah. to see you elected to parliament? Yes, they were. And I'm just honoured. Um, they're still alive now. Um, they're in their, their mid-80s. But um, it was such an honour to be there. And, and one of the things that happened is that I was classified as the first Cook Islander, New Zealand-born Cook Islander, to enter into New Zealand parliament. Well, they would have been so proud of this, huh? Incredibly proud. And I was proud to to represent them and represent our community. And mm, I bet. You know, it's, it's a wonderful thing, yeah. And then I guess you were swept out in, was it 2020, with the Jacinda Ardern. So you, you got swept out of office in 2017. Correct. You had three years in opposition, and then with Jacinda's landslide, you were swept out off the list, is that correct? Yes, and, and I was pushed further down the list. And look, one of the things I'd say in 2017, you know, um, my wife and I prayed and said, Do, should we stay or should we go? And what happened is that when Trevor Mallard took out the name of Jesus out of the parliamentary prayer, uh, not many people gave any mind to it. But you see, it's significant um, because, as you know, that prayer lasted for 165 years. Yeah. That prayer was actually the very first debate of Parliament in 1854, you know, when uh, an MP from Christchurch, McAndrew, turned around and said, point of order, Mr. Speaker, before we debate, deliberate, and decide the affairs of this nation into the future, we need divine guidance. And so for 165 years, there was a set of values, and despite Helen Clark saying that we didn't have any formal religion, we had a Christian foundation yes, that the nation was based on. And that prayer simply said, putting all personal and private interests aside, we beseech thee that you would give us divine guidance, that we would conduct the affairs of this house to the peace, prosperity, and welfare of this nation. We honor the Queen, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Now, those values were an anchor stone, whether people believed them or not, but they held Parliament and government to account. And as soon as they were removed by Trevor, rephrased as some sort of new age sort of statement at the beginning of parliament we've seen an acceleration over the last five to six years of values and ideology that no longer retain the very values that our democratic nation was founded on so 2020 was obviously the i believe the election of fear and so therefore i was one of 22 national mps uh, that left parliament at that time i now realize how significant that was of Trevor Mallard, and thank you for that, because I was a different person when he did that. Not that I was in Parliament, but I was a different person to what I am now. And I concur heartily with what you say. And it's this idea of 
these godless people who have no respect for our history or what's gone before or the institutions that bind us together, things like marriage, um, things like truthfulness. They have no respect for that. And every day's sort of like a ground zero where we're rushing ahead. And Trevor Mallard is one of those, and he will scoff at a prayer that puts something above party politics and above individual ambition and ego. And if you take that away, then all you're left with is that ambition, that ego, that lust for power. And you're right. Um, I remember that prayer being said. And it was a moment of peace, even though then I wasn't a Christian. And it was a moment of thoughtfulness. And it was a moment of what that house has debated and been through in our 165 years. And so it put your day into context because you'd think of World War One, World War Two, those momentous moments. Yeah. But to Trevor Mallard, it's all about getting rid of that and the crazy people we've had in power. And it's, we've lost such a lot, Alfred, haven't we? We have. And, you know, the demise we are in a country didn't happen overnight. No. And, uh, but what it did is that once we lost the valleys, the anchor stone, then we've run adrift. And so, therefore, as you know, euthanasia got, you know, yes. accelerated, uh, abortion law reforms got accelerated. Yes. Uh, and then when I was out, we had conversion practices, non-binary gender. I mean, it's just an incredible, incredible. Uh, acceleration of, you know, legislation and more that actually has opened up, I suppose, some of the greatest concerns we have as a nation. Yes. Now having to try and define things that never needed defining and rather than accepting things that were black and white, we've now got 150 shades of grey where yeah. we're confused, frustrated, uncertain. Uh, yeah, and it's the condition we are in as a nation. We can't even say what a woman is. Mm. So you left Parliament. What did you do on leaving Parliament? So one of the things that my wife and I did, we thought, well, we'll just ride off into the sunset, do something else. But we felt that, you know, from a faith perspective, that the Lord was was leading us to begin to pray for parliament, to pray for, gov pray for government. And so we just began to, to intercede to pray. It was also a good time for both my wife and I. I'd been away for nine years, and as you know, you lose time with family. You do. And it was a way of actually just spending time together. I mean, lockdown obviously had that moment. There were some funny moments, though, um, Rodney, that I'd, you know, I'd get up and she'd look across, oh, you're still here. <laughs> <laughs> she got used to me just being gone and yeah. then she'd say to friends well, what's it like having Alfred home well it's sort of good and bad I mean the good thing is he is home but the bad thing is that he's so opinionated yes. and I keep telling him this is not parliament now this is not I, I'm I'm the law here okay yeah yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm the, the home <laughs> so you know it was wonderful for our, our marriage and our relationship to spend some time you know uh, that again together and at the same time, too, we just learned to how to pray and intercede for you know, our, our parliament, our government, bringing the experience of faith and the experience of our politics uh, together 
and then uh, focusing on that. We did a lot of work around um, Māori leadership, uh, telling the other side of the story, of the gospel story, you know, from 1814, Samuel Marsden, but then hearing the other sides of the Māori story about the significance that it's played uh, in regards to peacemaking in the nation, you know, from everyone from Ngāti Parau to up in Ngāpui, Wurimu um, Tamihana in the Waikato area, and you can see that our history and our heritage has so much of this Christian faith, while others sort of look at it in a negative light, there's been so much to be proud of that is a so foundation much. stone for us. Mm. So much, so much. Um, and you made a decision not to stay with National and offer your services to National again, but to start a new political party. Why was that? Well, when I was interviewed about that, I said that, you know, I hadn't moved away from National. National had moved away from me and all the other Conservatives. They mm. now, I believe, have become far more open to be Liberal rather than holding as Conservative values. I personally didn't want to go back, Rodney. I felt that I'd done my dash and, you know, but again, I mine is a faith story. I, I can't say it any other way where, you know, 15 weeks out, you know, 105 days away from the election, I really felt the presence of God come to me and the first thing he said is let it go you see at the end of my nine years i'd made a vow i was never coming back it had cost me and my family too much and when i let it go and i said lord i will serve you if it means to go back again i will do that and as soon as that i just began to weep i began to cry and i realized what god had put inside of me is his love for this nation and for its people and it's unshakable it's unmovable and so now we're running at this mountain we're running to this giant uh, called government, and we are unafraid. And we know, and I know, that this love inside of me is an incredible love that is far-reaching into the communities around the country, into the small highways and byways, little country towns and so forth, and regional rural areas, places that are forgotten and in some cases despised. But this love of God that is inside of me is incredible. And so, um, you know, mine is a conviction story of believing that I've been called for such a time as this to be able to bring truth while exercising grace and then also to overcoming the fear that is in our nation by also proclaiming hope and encouraging people to vote for hope because that's what a vision is actually birthed out of for this nation and for its people. You must have been appalled like I have been appalled with the voting record of my party, the ACT Party, and your party, or our former parties, the National Party. I did not believe it when I was told that ACT and National had voted for the Gender Identity Bill, or whatever it's called, that would allow you and I to change our birth certificate to say we were girls. I could not believe that Labour or the Greens would vote for that. It is so nonsensical and dishonest. But for National and Act to vote for that, this is crazy stuff. They're like they're like got the devil possessing them or something. I mean, that's just <laughs> insanity, is it not? You must have looked at that and shaken your head. And there must be you must be familiar with good Conservative MPs in the National Party, 
who has swallowed a shipload of dead rats to have to vote for that. Yeah, I do, and and uh, it is very sad. It's a sad day in which they did do that. You and I know, Rodney, that inside that place, they, they call it the political spirit, and it's so easy to get caught up in the hype of power, Indeed. Uh, the insatiability of being able to sort of then at times manipulate and coerce and control. It is intoxicating, and if you're not careful, you can get caught up in that moment and you lose the sense Mm-hmm. Of the very values that you once believed in, mm-hmm. and I just believe that's what's that's what's happened uh, mm-hmm. to those that are in there. I mean, even to the point that, look, when they had the protest outside, I was texting. I mean, I wasn't there. I was texting some of my colleagues, and I said to them, "What are you guys doing? Why aren't you going out?" I said, "We always went out, even though we didn't believe yes uh, in the always. people, and yet somehow, you know, they drank the Kool Aid. They believed that it was the right thing." that Trevor Mallard and Jacinda Ardern were telling them, let's stand in solidarity. Well, you're the opposition. <laughs> you don't have to stand for things you don't believe in. In effect, of anything, you should be acting accordingly uh, to your conscience. And this is what, and like you, in the word appalled, you know, um, it's quite a diplomatic way of saying that we are just not only disgusted and disappointed, but this is what happened uh, to people. But this is what happens in politics. You can lose your way so easily. Um, I don't want you to be, I'm not asking you to be disparaging in any way of other people. It's rather an insight that you may be able to help me with. Because I want to like Chris Luxon. Because I hope that he'll be our next Prime Minister. But on paper, I should like him. Successful CEO, businessman, friendly, outgoing. John Key rates him. Um, But I can't get over this one fact that he's a Christian who won't put his faith into his words and his actions. And I know that's possible because I saw it firsthand with Bill English, who was a wonderful man and never, ever shrunk from being a Christian. And he was an extremely successful and able politician, probably, to me, one of our most successful and most able. I would rate him above John Key, which would surprise most people. So how is it that you can be a Christian and park it for politics? I understand how you can do that. But you're doing the exact opposite of what being a Christian is about to me. I mean, it's it's a total absence of principles and feeling, and I don't want to disparage the guy. I'm, I struggle with it. What, what on earth would possess a person to be like that? I think one of the things that, um, that we learn when we're in Parliament, and especially in campaigning and electioneering, people look for two things. They look for trust and they look for confidence. Trust is a hard thing. In a sense, inside of their heart, inside their conscience, inside their instinct, 
You know, do they come across as someone that they can trust? The second one is confidence. In other words, can they do the job? You know, do they have the ability to be able to lead and make good decisions, wise decisions, and even be innovative? You said it right there when it comes to, to Chris Luxon. I mean, the CV tells it all. It talks about his ability as a leader, as a manager, um, as a CEO. And on paper, you could say he's got the record to do the job. But the one thing I find that I hear most about people when they talk about Chris Luxon is a word for trust. Mm. And look, I'm down here in Lumsden, you know, down here in the uh, <laughs> bottom of the deep south, right? And we're heading over to Wanaka. We've just come from in, uh, in the cargo and so forth. And, you know, um, one of the things that uh, people look for is that in your leadership, that actually you, you know, you look after your people. Good leadership is looking after your people. And so people have told me that, you know, when they saw the way that Chris as a leader at times treated some of the very people, and you'll know them, some of them from around this area here, they lost trust that he was a good leader. When he wasn't able to stand for the things that he believed in, they said they lost they lost trust that he couldn't stand for principles. Um, when he was um, trying to articulate things and somehow they weren't sure that actually he meant what he's saying and sees what he mean, people lost trust. And so it's the one thing I hear all the time is that people say, he's a nice guy, but we just don't know if we can trust him. Uh, and trust is an yeah. instinct. It's an instinct, right? It's something that comes yeah. from the heart. And uh, so that's the most common thing that I hear from people. And I would have to say that I concur with them. I, I, I agree with them. Now tell us about New Zealand. And after you've told us about New Zealand, tell us why listeners and others should consider you for their party vote. So new zeal, I love the word zeal because it means energy and pursuit of a cause. Uh, new zeal, um, we set this up because we just believe again it was a conviction from our heart to actually be a party that represented a set of values in the political landscape. You know, there is a position for political conservatism and conservative Christianity that becomes really important. So we're a political party but we've got strong Christian conservative values. That's who we are. We're unashamed of those. Uh, so we serve all New Zealanders, but we believe that we are called to present ourselves as an alternative inside that landscape as well. Uh, the things that I suppose that for us that in our values, uh, we talk about the family being critical. Now, everyone talks about the family, but experience will tell me when I was a minister that at the moment we removed the family from the centre of our policy framework. Yes. And so we've now seen unconsented uh, opportunities by Ministry of Health, Ministry of Education and so forth. When the vaccines came rolling out and they wanted to vaccinate the children, they actually went to the schools and said, you can be as young as 12 and you do not need the consent of your parents. Yes. Now, this is what happens when you remove the families from the consent of your policy framework. And that's the point of difference having been there we can talk about our priorities with intelligence and it tells you about the how. We're talking about farming. You know, I was talking to farmers well before, you know, even setting up a party over two years ago. Uh, I had a relationship with farmers, seeing the burden of compliance because we created a blame culture at the moment. And rather than 
our farmers feeling like they were the heroes of our economy producing food for our families, they've been now, now been made to feel like the villains. And now we've got an ideology that's actually putting the burden of blame on our farmers, our food producers, uh, for all the things around you know, pollution and, and climate change and so forth. So for us, we want to advocate for and work with our farmers who are the most efficient food producers in the world. Uh, we talk of, about the future in education, and we know that at the moment we've got education which is struggling to be able to educate our kids on some of the basics of reading, you know, writing, and even mathematics. There's extracurricular activity that's actually the role and responsibility of the family, not of the schools. So we want to remove that extracurricular activity, and we want to reintroduce parents as first teachers. You remember that acronym PEFT that becomes important. So that's what we're doing. We're providing these as, you know, these are very simple but foundational principles and policies mm. that are really important. We talk about finance. And so for us, fiscal financial responsibility is less about money and more about attitude and behavior. And, you know, Rodney, we used to call it the public purse for a reason because it reminded us that, you know, this fiscal envelope is made from the taxes of hard-earning Kiwis, from cleaners to farmers to business owners, and that's where the contribution. So we were we were conscious that whatever decision that we make need not be wasteful. Always sought the best outcome for the people, but we've seen over the last five to six years incredible wastage because we've forgotten that it's a public purse. Inside our finances, we also know that the backbone of our economy is our small to medium enterprises. I came from that sector as well in construction. So we want to back up our SMEs, 550,000 of them, especially in the first five years where they've got the biggest fallout rate, especially around provisional tax, GST and PAYE. We want to provide backup office support and finance, legal and HR. And at the same time too, one of the things that I, I know, and we talked about it when I was in national as a minister, was our contribution to research and development. Innovation is the key to actually allowing our economy to thrive and to grow. And so for us, that's uh, critical as well. And so we want more investment in innovation, uh, R&D, not just for the corporates, but in particular for our small to medium enterprises. And the last one is around freedoms. You know, we know at the moment it evokes such a powerful emotion. So we believe that it's important and New Zeal will actually stand for the freedom of speech, will ensure there's freedom of, of religion, and also to the freedom of choice and conscience. And so those things are critically important uh, to us. To answer the question that you said in the last part, which is about why, why would listeners, why would Kiwis, why would ordinary New Zealanders in New Zealand consider New Zealand? I'd ask that you would consider that when we think about trust and confidence, you've heard the conviction of my heart. It's not the ambition of thinking of status. Rodney and I know that you should never romance the stone of politics or of being a politician. It's an incredibly challenging a place to be in. So the conviction of my heart is simply to do one thing, which is to serve this nation and to serve its people, to love this nation and love its people as well. That's the conviction of our heart. The second thing is about confidence. So that comes from being able to do the job. I've had nine years of experience uh, in the political arena. I've been a cabinet minister. I've got Paul Adams, who was three years with United Future and Peter Dunn. Oh, yes, excellent. And uh, so that's 12 years political experience. We've got people in our team of 11 who've got experience in farming, education, business, and health. These things mean that we've got the competence to be able to do the job while experience that adds to it as well. And so that's our heart. This is our head that we're presenting to you. And when it comes to time and people say that, you know, it's too short. You know, Rodney, you remember in 2002, 
Peter Dunn simply had a moment in time where out of the political noise, he spoke truth. And the sound of truth meant that in that short period of time, he went from a one-man party to nine people in 2002 and entering parliament. Yes, and indeed. so we want to we want to speak a sound of uh, to resound the sound of truth, and to give people hope. You don't have to vote for the lesser of two evils, because that's a vote out of fear. But instead, you can vote out of hope. You can vote for your values, because it's never a wasted vote. And when you do that, this is the return of a country that we are all aspiring and looking forward to as well. Uh, so my name is Alfred Roddle. That's I'm the leader of the New Zealand Party, and, and this is what we're doing: presenting ourselves forward uh, to the nation. Well, you couldn't have done a better presentation for me um, to win my vote, Alfred. It's Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've been honoured and privileged to have Alfred Narrow with us from the new party called, get this very clear, New Zeal, which is that energy for New Zealand. I couldn't imagine such a great presentation, Alfred. That was just wonderful. And I truly hope and pray that you and your team get into our parliament because, my goodness, we need you and we need your team. And I wish you every success and I'll pray for you to have the wisdom and the energy that you need for this race to Election Day and beyond. And I wish you uh, Godspeed. Thank you, Rodney, and can I just say thank you to you. Thank you for your heart. Thank you for your consideration and even mm. the depth of your reflections just during this interview. Uh, I have to say it's been one of the most calming, peaceful, reassuring um, you know, interviews I've, I've ever had, and I just want to say uh, and I want to honour you for your service as well, mm. and thank you. Thank you, Alfred. You get out there, win those votes. <laughs> I want to have you back as a minister. Oh, that's great. Well, we're heading off to Wanaka now, and yeah, we've been to quite a few small little towns, and that's where okay. where the people are saying that. So, bless you. Thank you so much. And Rodney. bless your wife too, because she's giving oh. up a lot for us. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Bye, bye, Alfred. Bye, bye. There you had it. That was Alfred from New Zealand, new political party. Oh my goodness. Oh my God. How wonderful was that? We've had such wonderful presentations, but to me. Top of the box. That's a man that we need in our parliament. That's a party that we need in our parliament. That's the leadership and the guidance that we desperately need. And just compare that presentation to what you hear from National Labour Act, New Zealand First, the Greens, the Maori Party, and ask yourself, you can't be wasting your vote to vote for New Zeal. Can't be. Thank you for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.